Hey, this is Sandy. And Randy. And we're here on AT Corner. Being an athletic trainer comes with ups and downs, and we're here to showcase them all. Join us as we share our world in sports medicine. Welcome back to another episode of AT Corner, and we are here for an education episode. You know, we're almost to 50 episodes. We are almost to 50 episodes. So what's on the dock for today? Well, I was just about to say National Athletic Training Month was nice because we had interviews, so it gave me time to prep for this. So I'm very, very grateful for that time. So if you guys are new, actually, Randy, uh, for our education episodes, he does this really, really awesome compilation of journal articles, and then we turn it into a conversational format. This one, I think, Randy, what'd you say, about 20 articles you read? Yeah, I think we're running around 20 for this. And that's the ones I used for this. I probably read closer to 30. Yes. See, if you're like me, that is not my wheelhouse. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll leave the reading to Randy. What are we going to talk about today, Yes, today we are talking about the scapula and its role in shoulder injury. So what we're going to do is, of course, we've got to talk about scapular dyskinesis. We're going to review the prevalence of scapular dyskinesis and how that can relate to shoulder injury. And then we're going to review the anatomy, kinematics of the scapulothoracic joint and the glenohumeral joint. And then discuss evaluation of the scapula and eventually some rehab ideas. And we'll be good to go. You know, I love talking about anatomy, but I'm really glad that we're starting with something different this time. Yeah, we're going we're going into let's describe this topic. So scapular dyskinesis, essentially it's just an alteration in the dynamic control and the position of the scapula. So what can cause scapular dyskinesis? It can either be a neurological pathology, so it can either be your long thoracic nerve, which by the way, that is always a quiz bowl question. And a BOC question. I had that on my BOC. Absolutely. Uh the accessory nerve can be involved and also the dorsal scapular nerve. So Anytime you have someone with scapular dyskinesis, you do want to rule out any neurological pathologies that could be causing that. And also on the flip side, you know, most people think of scapular dyskinesis causing injury, but injury to the shoulder can actually cause scapular dyskinesis. As we've talked about before in other musculoskeletal conditions, pain and injury causes the whole motor system to change. So any damage to the rotator cuff, the labrum, any impingement, even adhesive capsulitis, I bet not many people. Remember, frozen shoulder, but that can also cause scapular dyskinesis. And then, of course, fatigue. When muscles fatigue, they don't work very well. So having fatigue can also lead to scapular dyskinesis. Okay, so let's go right into the meat of what we're talking about today. How does scapular dyskinesis actually relate to the shoulder injury itself? Yeah, so... First, you have to look at how prevalent is scapular dyskinesis. And in overhead athletes, more than half of the athletes examined have scapular dyskinesis. I think it was 61%. Now, that's just saying they have it. That's not even saying if they're symptomatic. They just have it. So a majority of these athletes, uh, overhead athletes, have the chance to be injured because of this. And what was even more crazy is when they looked at actual shoulder pain athletes, so people who actually had shoulder pain, They reported a range between some studies show 67% of those injured population had scapular dyskinesis, with some actually saying 100%. Wow. You normally do not see 100% in many things. Yeah, no, I would not say that. So that really begs the question, okay, is scapular dyskinesis a risk factor for injury? And to answer that question, as with most of the questions answered on this show and in research in general, yes and no. So if you isolate 
scapulodyskinesis itself and say if that's a risk factor. Statistically speaking, it's kind of iffy. Some studies will be like, no, it's not statistically different. Some will say yes. So let's let's take a little bit deeper of a look. So a meta-analysis in 2018 found that there was almost a 50% higher risk of developing future shoulder injury if these overhead athletes had scapodyskinesis. So showing that there is a chance they're going to get hurt more than someone who doesn't have it. On the flip side, just this past year, another meta-analysis came out and just took scapodyskinesis itself and was examining if it was a risk factor. And it did say it was not statistically significant to lead to injury, but through their like stats, there was a trend that it could lead lead to future injury. I mean, statistically speaking, there's always a chance unless you were talking about the number you're talking about before with 100%. <laughs> to me, it's interesting because, yeah, we're, it's important to look at these risk factors, but I like to look at the risk factors more of a chance of re-injury. Yeah, and that's another thing you have to consider is you're not going to, you're just not going to address this, right? If someone has scapodyskinesis, you're going to address it. So when you do look at these studies, and we're going to talk a little bit more about it coming up is we never have just isolated risk factors. Like, that's not a realistic thing. And most studies, you can look at any musculoskeletal pathology study. Anytime you try to isolate one risk factor, you're going to have conflicting evidence on a ton of studies. So I think what we really need to start thinking about these risk factors are how they relate to each other and to other risk factors. Take scapodyskinesis, right? We already know that's a problem. A lot of people have it. It's not good. You want to have control of your scapula. But how does that relate to someone's training load? How much sleep did they get? And for the pitchers, like innings pitch, does that matter, right? We already said fatigue can play a role. And there's already literature out there that has shown that throughout a baseball season, someone who at baseline didn't have scapular dyskinesis, well, by mid-season or the end of the season, they can develop scapular dyskinesis. So does that play a role? So I think what a lot of studies are going to start doing, and especially from a clinical standpoint, what we can look at is how do all these risk factors relate? In my opinion, that would make scapular dyskinesis definitely a risk factor because if they're not able to control their scapula with every movement, those mistakes and the damage that's caused from that will start to add up. And at some point, something's going to break down. What you were saying really makes sense because there is so there's so much musculature that attaches in and around the shoulder that plays such a big role in the kinematics of the scapula. Can we talk about what is actually happening? What's the role of the scapula? Yeah, so the scapula provides an articulation with the humerus and provides a base for the rotator cuff muscles to actually do their job and support the humerus and keep that humeral head centered in the glenoid. But also what a lot of times kind of gets forgotten and In baseball, it's more thought about, but that scapula is essentially the link between the lower extremity and the trunk with the upper extremity. So you're, it's channeling all that energy that the lower extremity and trunk produced to throw a ball or to swing a racket in tennis to transfer that, that all that force generated into the upper extremity. So it has a big role in efficiently transferring that. And if there's any damage in that link or poor control in that link something's going to break down and what provides that control so like you said there's a lot of muscles that go around it you have the upper trapezius the lower trapezius the middle trapezius 
rhomboids, uh, minor and major, serratus anterior, and pec minor. I mean, technically, coracobrachialis attaches to the <laughs> scapula. So you have a lot of muscles that are around this this bone, essentially, that help control it. And if there's any change in one of them, one's more active than the other, bad things happen. Also, don't forget, the scapula also articulates with the clavicle at the AC and CC joints. And that's actually the only really bony attachment that it has, or an attachment with another bone, because the, the the humerus is a little bit different compared to the, the clavicle. So when you're taking a history and evaluating someone's shoulder, it's a good idea to know about any clavicular fractures, uh, clavicular sprains, anything like that, because that can change the way the clavicle moves. And if the clavicle isn't moving correctly, the scapula is probably not moving correctly as well. You know, actually, I was going to say that because... It's so fascinating to me to look at, if you look at the joints of, of throughout your body, if you look at the scapula and its relation to the ribs, that is not a typical joint at all. No, that is not a common joint at all. It's by the book a joint, but <laughs> it, there's really no attachment to those ribs. So as we talked about movement, and obviously the clavicle is going to play a role in that, we also have to consider how the scapula moves with the humerus. So as the humerus goes into abduction, there should be a ratio of two to one in movement. So what that means is for every two degrees of humoral elevation, so that could either be flexion or uh, abduction, there's one degree of upward rotation for the scapula. So it's a very intricate movement that if there's any breakdown in that system, what you'll see is that subacromial space will close off. And we'll talk about why that's important a little bit later. But another thing that you have to consider that's not talked about is now the kinematics of throwing. So in that late, in the cocking and late cocking phases, what you should see the scapula do is it should go into retraction, externally rotate, and posteriorly tilt. Essentially, it's following the humerus to provide a stable base and keep that humeral head centered in the glenoid. The next phase of throwing would be the acceleration going into deceleration, and then finally your follow through at that point. The scapula is going to change and it's going to protraction, internal rotation, anterior tilt. Again, it's following the humerus so it can keep that humeral head centered in the glenoid. So that's how it should normally go. But what happens when there's dyskinesis? What happens when that scapula is just not following that scapula humoral rhythm or being controlled properly? Well, any malposition or lack of control is going to lead to that subacromial space decreasing in the available space and the problem is there's a lot of tendons blood vessels nerves that run through that space and they're just going to keep getting rammed against that humeral head whether it's the humeral head rising too high or because the roof is getting a little bit lower which would be the the acromion just banging into those tendons causing pain causing damage you'll also see a decrease in rotator cuff muscle strength because like we said before the scapula is a solid base for the rotator cuff muscles to do their job and stabilize the humerus well if you've tried to move a couch on an unstable surface you can't do a lot of things (laughs) right you're not going to be as efficient so if you don't have the sufficient base for these muscles to provide optimal force now you're looking at that head of the humerus just shifting all over the place. Now you're looking at uh, anterior capsule problems, labral problems, still could be impingement, so many problems. So with our evaluation, one of the easiest things to do, well, maybe not easy because it takes practice, but 
one of the easiest tasks to do in your evaluation is to observe. And essentially, one of the quickest thing you can look at is one posture. You want to see if they are showing that upper cross syndrome where we're looking at forward head, rounded shoulders. But you can also dive in a little bit deeper and look for what's called a sick scapula. Essentially, the word sick is broken down into the S meaning scapular malposition. So it's just not sitting quite like the uninvolved arm would be. Uh, The eye is inferior medial border prominence. So if the inferior angle or the medial border is just poking out of the skin, that's a problem. Or like winging. Or winging. The C is for coracoid pain. So not really the observation part, but if you, you know, really palpate into that uh, where the coracoid process would be, are they having pain with that? And then finally, the K would be the dyskinesis. So to observe dyskinesis, What's out there in the literature is you have them do shoulder flexion, shoulder abduction, and then you just observe how the scapula moves. How it's kind of taught is you have them do it without any weights first, see how that, see how it looks. And then you add light weights because the added resistance requires more force to be done. And then you have them do the same thing and then see how that changes. You can also go for like an endurance aspect and have them do a few reps and see how that changes. As you observe that movement through that test, you can go off of what Kibler has described as a classification. So what I have found is Kibler is a big scap shoulder guy. He has a lot of good stuff out there. Um, I know I've learned a lot from reading his articles. So how it's broken down are there four types of scapular dyskinesis. A type one is, and it's going to follow the same lines as the six scapula definition. A type one scapular dyskinesis is the inferior medial scapular border is prominent throughout the movement or at some point in that movement. Type 2, the medial scapular border prominence is there, so more winging. Type 3, now you have the supromedial border prominence, so that scapula is all over the place at this point. And then type 4 is normal. So basically type 1 to 3 starts at the bottom, now we're here? And now we're here. Drake (laughs) would be very proud of this classification system. So I was actually evaluating one of my baseball catchers the other day, and um, I was evaluating him for bicep pain, but I did want to take a look at his shoulders and how they moved. So I first had him just go into, I was just doing observations, so I had him do shoulder abduction, and I noticed, so he's a right-handed thrower, I noticed that his left side, as he was going into adduction, that eccentric lowering of his arm, I noticed that there was more fluttering and winging on his left side, his non-throwing arm, than his right side. That's very interesting. And the way that I can attribute it, because he actually wasn't having shoulder pain or like he wasn't, none of his rotator cuff muscles were involved per se. Um, he, his shoulder actually on the right side, it moved very well. The thing that I attributed to his left side was the fact that he probably doesn't train that one as well as he does the right side. And the right side, as he's throwing, he's working on those, uh, as he's uh, going through the end of that throwing, he is working on that eccentric motion, which he isn't doing on the yeah, left the, side. If anything, the left side's more of a concentric because that's his pull through as he's following through. Exactly. So I thought that was very interesting and, and uh, wanted to share that. So as we move from the observation, we're going to go into... Every athletic training student's favorite thing about evaluation, the special tests. And there are some special tests for this. 
and you can look, there's a lot, you can use like a goniometer, there's measuring the distances between both inferior angles and stuff like that, but not a lot of clinicians are going to take the time to do that. You know, that does take a lot of time to do. Um, some, some quick ones that you can do is the scapular assistance test. Essentially in this one, you're using your hands to assist the scapula in posterior tilt and upward rotation as the patient uh, lifts their arm up either in deflection or abduction. A positive for that sign is they have relief of pain or actually improved motion as they bring their arm up. I use this one so often. Yeah, it. I mean, it, one, it makes sense, and it's a great test because it really does guide your, your rehab plan because now you know. So the problem is coming from poor scapular control. We need you to be able to posterior tilt and upward rotate better, and that will relieve your pain. Exactly. And then as soon as you know what that is, then you can start working on the scapular stabilizers. You can start working on the muscles that do upward rotation, um, that that trio of muscles that do that. So um, should we review that, actually? That's a good review. Upper trap, lower trap, and serratus anterior. Yes, that was great review. I also really love to pair this after I have a positive scapular assistance test and I do start working on that trio um, in addition to the scapular stabilizers and core. I really like to add a KT tape taping in. I have them uh, in scapular retraction and then I I just tape starting kind of like mid clavicle and then coming posterior all the way down, almost like following that posterior sling down to like uh, probably just above lumbar spine. Yeah, so like T12. Yeah. I really, really find a lot of uh, positive outcomes with that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I totally forgot about the KT taping. I like to do that as well, especially on a Friday. And the, I know everyone's going to listen and be like, oh, that's weird. Why did you only do it on Fridays? Because most of the time I'm not going to see them Saturday or Sunday. So that's two less days that I have to work with them. Well, if I throw this KT tape on, and like you said, I do a very similar pattern for the lower trap. And then what I try to do is mimic the rhomboids as well and add a little retraction there as well. So by adding the tape, I'm still kind of working on them over the weekend because that's their cue, like, oh, I need to activate this. I need to activate this. So it gives them that cue that, okay, I need to activate. And now you're starting to train those muscles even more without me actually physically being there and cueing them. And note, it is activating during daily activities. It's not activating 100% 24-7 throughout the day because we as humans are not meant, actually no muscle in any body (laughs) is meant to be turned be turned on and activated throughout the entire or engaged throughout the entirety of time especially that kind of level of contraction exactly so yes we do have postural muscles that are more sustained but uh these uh actually as humans we're not meant to be in a nice solid posture all day we're meant to have those periods of relaxation where we're not being chased and our uh our sympathetic nervous system is not activated all the time. Yeah. So the next test is very similar to the scapular assistance test. It kind of has the same idea, but this one is the scapular repositioning test. And essentially what you're doing in this one is you're stabilizing that medial edge. You might even add a little retraction to it. And essentially what you're doing is you're trying to reposition the scapula where an optimal position would be. And then you retest external rotation strength. A positive finding is their external rotation strength is actually going to be more after you reposition the scapula. So essentially what that's saying is 
because of the poor scapular position, the rotator cuff's not firing correctly, leading to your impingement or labral issues. When I put it back to where it should, that rotator cuff's like, all right, I'm at an optimal length. Let's get to work. And then you get that increased strength. Okay, wait. Explain to me how the scapular assistance test differs from the clinician's perspective to the scapular repositioning test, what you just explained. So the scapular assistance test, you're aiding in the movement. So they're going to do like shoulder abduction and then you help the scapula move. Whereas the repositioning test, you're putting the scapular, the scapula in a position and then testing muscle strength. So you are not moving the scapula, you're stabilizing the scapula. You're essentially stabilizing it in a position. Got it. So the nice thing with these evaluation techniques are it really kind of guides your rehab. And of course, when someone has shoulder pain, you're going to do a lot more evaluation. You're not just looking at the scapula and, well, calling it a day, right? You still want to look, you know, figure out what structure is being like, what's the issue? Are we looking at impingement? Are we looking at labral? So, of course, you're going to do more in your history and you're more in your evaluation. But those are just some areas. If you don't if you're not comfortable with evaluating the scapula, that's a great way to start. So, like I said, it really guides your rehab. So, based on your findings, you kind of go from there. If they're having upward rotation problems or they're just not putting the scapula in a good position for the rotator cuff, you're going to train those lower traps, middle trap, rhomboids, the serratus anterior. All those have all those muscles have strong control over the scapula and help with the movement. It's not just stabilization. It's also efficient control with the movement. As you do your rehab, don't just get so tunnel visioned on, oh, well, I'm working on the scapula and the shoulder. A big key thing with upper extremity sports is the kinetic chain. If someone's glutes aren't firing correctly or aren't strong enough or don't have the available motion in their hips to, say, pitch or throw or sur- you know do a tennis serve, they're going to get that force or that motion from somewhere else. And a lot of times, it's the shoulder. You know, I actually, we just had a baseball player who had a groin strain so we were working with him on his groin and because of his compensation yeah we were able to get him back for his groin but guess what was hurting next his shoulder it was and you see it just shows the motor system changes with injury so like you said whatever compensation he had it really affected his shoulder because maybe something wasn't firing the way it should have maybe he wasn't having the strength somewhere else and he compensated by well i need i still need to throw hard my shoulder can get there the problem is if the shoulder is now working harder something's going to break down so that's why like anytime you read anything about shoulder rehab the first thing they're going to say is please use the kinetic chain that lower extremity it's made to generate a lot of force think about it it has to propel your body weight in everyday activities so to help someone throw 99 miles an hour, 100 miles an hour, it's going to generate a lot of force. Use that force. It'll take a lot of stress off the shoulder. So when you're doing these rehabs, do not forget about that lower extremity or the core as well. I was going to say, especially in the core, you want to work on those obliques because those are what's working on your rotation. Absolutely. And if you get a good pre-stretch, it's going to help with that follow through and that acceleration and game changer. I had a baseball player who we were working on his, sh- his shoulder. He was actually, his shoulder was in a lot of pain. So mostly for his shoulder, we were actually not doing shoulder exercises. We were just doing p- pain modulation. We were just working on his core and hips and lower body while we were getting his pain down for his shoulder. 
and he got back so much faster. Not saying that I had a control, but once we got his pain down, really his he was able to go back and pitch pain free. So you didn't you didn't do a randomized control trial on this. You weren't I'm, blinded you know or what? anything. I, I, I'm sorry. I sh- I really should have. <laughs> but yeah, no. It just shows how important the connect chain is. And like you said, like if you can't work on the shoulder because they're in too much pain, you got to start somewhere. Core and lower extremities is a good place to start. Another thing is a lot of times people have difficulty in, okay, where do I start? Like, how do I do this? A good rule of thumb is work on scapular control first before you work on the rotator cuff. Because as we've already said, if the scap- if you have poor scapular control, the rotator cuff is not firing efficiently anyways. So I would say your first step when you're looking at the shoulder itself Let's get that scapular control. Let's make sure we're able to control the scapula, put it in a position where now all the other muscles distal to that are going to fire correctly. And the biggest thing is once you get that, now we can start strengthening that rotator cuff more because we're getting more efficient contraction. And then the last thing that I think sometimes gets forgotten about, and especially in season, it's really hard to do. After you do all the strengthening for the scapula and the rotator cuff progress to improving their endurance. We've already said fatigue can play a huge role in scapular dyskinesis. So let's after you, Hey, they're good on strength. I'm really running out of things to do to challenge them. Endurance. They having good endurance to those scapular retractors and stabilizers are going to be huge. And if you don't know what exercises are really good for that, or like how you want to do that, everyone knows about the throwers 10 program. Like that's a really good basis to start your shoulder rehab or even maintenance or preventative exercises. Well, Wilkes group, they went a little bit further and they made the advanced throwers 10. And essentially what that is, is it's more focused on the endurance where you do three sets of 10, but each 10 you're changing how you do that contraction. So the first set you're doing concentric contraction. And then the next set you're doing an isometric contraction on one holding it while the other arm does 10 and then you switch. And then that third set is both of them are doing isometric contraction. So you're getting a lot of endurance work through these exercises. So if you're looking for something like that, or you're looking to advance from a Thrower's 10 program, I would definitely encourage you to look up the advanced Thrower's 10 because it's really good stuff. Do you have a copy of that? I do have a copy of that. We will go ahead and throw that in our Facebook group as well then. Yes, we will. So yeah, definitely take a look at it. It's, uh, it's definitely some good stuff and it's, something different something to progress from maybe this these type of exercises are ah, they're getting too easy i really want to change it up this is a good way to do it you know i gotta say endurance is probably one of the hardest things to get during rehab oh big time because we know all the strength exercises oh yeah it's and so easy to throw a band at someone throw a wake throw a kettlebell do some rhythmic stabilization all those things but endurance that is something that is takes a little bit more effort to actually figure out some parameters for that oh and then also by the time they're ready for like endurance they're already kind of doing sport things back yeah so sometimes the compliance for them to come in is kind of like uh not very good because they're like what's the point i feel great and then also you have to account for what they're doing let's go back to monitoring training load if they're doing a ton and then i'm doing a ton of endurance stuff maybe i'm overloading them so sometimes it's hard to have uh, a balance there So you got to keep that in mind when you're throwing in endurance stuff. So I think that wraps up our shoulder talk for today. If you guys did want to check out the Advanced Thrower's 10, we're going to throw that in our Facebook group. It's called AT Corner Community. You can either look it up on Facebook. Um, It's a group. So you there is a question to get in. It's just 
where did you hear about our podcast? Or you can go to facebook.com slash group slash AT Corner Podcast. It will take you right to the group. Something that we haven't said in a while is that we are an affiliate with MedBridge, which also has a lot more shoulder continuing education for you guys. So if you want to check that out. Yeah, absolutely. Remember, this year is a reporting year. So it's going to be time for those CEUs. Everyone's going to be rushing for them. So what you'll do is I we have the link in the show notes. You'll go to MedBridge. And then when you're signing up for your subscription, you will put in the code ATCORNER to get a discount. I think it's like $175. So it's a it's a $175 off. It's a really good deal. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And like you said, they have a lot of great shoulder continuing education, other continuing education. They have certificate programs for upper and lower extremity rehab. They have everything for you. I love it. And then again, if you guys are new, we actually don't do every episode as education. We actually split in between education and stories. So this was obviously an education episode. Next week, we're going to go back to our stories where we are sharing relatable stories from athletic trainers. If you want to share your story, head over to our Instagram at AT Corner Podcast, and we'll post in our Instagram stories a call for different topics each week. You got anything else to add, Randy? Nope, that was perfect. Thank you for helping us showcase athletic training behind the tape. Bye.